passage for today will begin Matthew 3, uh, will be Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me know when you found it. Have you found it yet? A couple of you do. That's good. I still like the pastors that say either turn on or turn in your Bible these days because things have changed. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God for us to study this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, all the region about the Jordan, were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Father, please add your blessing to our study of your word this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Russell Moore begins his book, Onward, with this story. It helps for today. Dr. Moore writes, He always said he'd been born just fine the first time. This joke was his way of waving off our coffee shop shop debates about the existence of God. We were both college students in Bible Belt America. I, a born-again Christian, he a once-born atheist. He wasn't so much antagonistic to religion as he found it sort of strange and out of touch with real life along the lines of discussing the habitat of elves. He didn't believe in God and found the idea of heaven to be the most boring thing imaginable. And then one day, out of nowhere, he asked me to recommend a church. Can you find me a good Southern Baptist church, he said, but... One that's not too, you know, Southern Baptist-y. Surprised to find myself here in the turn lane of someone's Damascus Road, I stammered that I did not even know that he had become a Christian. I was waiting for his eyes to well up with tears as he would recount how my rendition of the theistic argument for design had clinched the decision for him, saving him forever from atheism and despair. He rolled his eyes. I don't believe any of that stuff, he said. But I want to go into politics. 
And I'm never going to be elected to anything in this state if I'm not a church member. And I've looked at the numbers. There are more Southern Baptists around here than anything else. So sign me up. I was stunned in a momentary silence as he stopped to check out a girl walking past our table. He then took a swig of coffee and said, but seriously, nothing freaky. If anyone starts screaming about hell or pulling a snake out of a box, I'm out of there. Dr. Moore goes on to say, My atheist friend was unusually honest, but I don't think he was honestly all that unusual. Atheism, he realized, isn't just about what one believes or doesn't believe. It's a tribal marker, one that made him something of an exile in the culture of the Christ-haunted South. He was willing to strike a deal with an innocuous form of Christianity in order to get what he wanted out of real life. Church membership would protect him from cultural marginalization, which was to him scarier than hell. You know, guys, though, it might seem like using empty religion as a tool, people using empty religion as a tool for social advancement or political advancement, that might seem new. It's not. That's been practicing, or that's been happening for a really long time. In fact, as we come back to our study of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, we're going to meet a genuine prophet of God, and we're going to meet a group of men who want to use that prophet's popularity to gain political position for themselves. And we're going to see a contrast between false religion and fruitful obedience. Now, what I'll tell you from before the beginning this morning, in case you can't figure it out, is that you don't want to be like the fakers. Think back to the Ten Commandments. Can anybody tell me the Third Commandment just off the top of their head, just like that? Don't don't ask me to do them in order. Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, sadly, a lot of people have determined that that commandment is about swearing. You know, don't don't cuss with God or Jesus as part of the process. Which, by the way, you shouldn't do. But that's not what the commandment's about. Something much more sinister is involved in this commandment. See, taking God's name in vain is to wear or bear the name of God in an empty or meaningless way. It's like wearing a baseball jersey when you're not really a sports fan. It's like claiming to be a Star Wars fan while loving Jar Jar Binks. It is to pretend to belong to God while having a life totally disconnected from God's rule. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God sees through empty pretending to be interested in Him. God knows our hearts, and in today's passage, God is going to allow John the Baptist to expose the empty religion of a group of men, and we, by God's grace, will learn from it. If you're a note-taker, if you're ready to write stuff down, Get ready for six things. Six things. Is it just me or do we keep getting more points every week? I don't know. This could get really bad by the end of the the book. Prepare for 48 points. No. First point. Prepare for the coming of Jesus, God's promised king. Prepare for the coming of Jesus, 
God's promised king. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Yum. I added that part. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we go. Our story continues. Last time, we saw the sovereign hand of God directing events and protecting the child Jesus. And much time has passed since our last look. It is probably around 30 years since we last saw Jesus. It seems like scholars would say that this happens anywhere between A.D. 27 and 30. And in order to get this scene, you need to remember a few points of significance here. Back in chapter 1 of Matthew in the genealogy, Matthew showed us that, Je- that Jesus is the promised one who was descended from the family of Abraham and connected to King David. In the birth narrative, in the birth story at the end of chapter 1, we see that Jesus is the promised Son of God, the rescuer of God's children. In chapter 2, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of many prophecies, and he's the true king from heaven who's going to be worshipped by people from all nations. We saw that with the wise men coming to worship him. And now, here we see a man named John. They call him the Baptist, and he shows up on the scene. He preaches to the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's calling the Jewish nation to turn away from their sin, to turn away from their self-rule. He's calling them to submit themselves to the rule of God because God's kingdom is arriving. In fact, the king is on his way and the people need to be ready to meet him. Now, once again, tied to the life of Jesus, Matthew shows us that Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. Matthew cites Isaiah chapter 40. Now, again, I don't know if you're real familiar with Isaiah, but for the first three-fifths of that book, the prophet pointed to the coming captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. That captivity happened under the Babylonian Empire from around 606 B.C. to 536 B.C., about 70 years. But in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah points the people to hope. See, God was going to deliver the people from their captivity, and eventually God was going to send the promised king, the promised rescuer, the one called Messiah, who would set right what went wrong with his people. Well, Listen to some of the words of the prophecy Matthew cites. I want to give you a couple extra verses thrown in for good measure. It's Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. Just listen in. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a pretty well-known prophecy. Um, if you've ever heard the, the Messiah sung at Christmas time, that comfort ye my people starts it all off. Well, it says a few things to the people of Judah. They can be comforted. Why? Because the Babylonian captivity is not going to last forever. There's going to come a day when people are going to return to Jerusalem out of Babylon, out of Persia, which actually happened. But the prophecy also says that there's going to come a day when the Lord himself is going to come as king. The glory of God is going to be revealed at that coming And it's going to be proper for the people to get ready to prepare for the arrival of God as king. You know, in the old days, a nation might repair their roads if they know a king's coming to make his arrival smooth. So the people of Judah are supposed to prepare themselves for the arrival of the promised Messiah. Well, we've been seeing time and time again in this gospel that the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And here, the work of John the Baptist fulfills prophecies about Jesus. Because God promised that a herald would call to the people to get ready for the coming king. And John is that messenger. And John is calling the people to get ready for the arrival of Jesus. So John is another perfect fulfillment of the prophecy to show that Jesus is the one that God has been promising and promising and promising and promising from the beginning. Now, verse 4, we see that John's clothes are the clothes of a desert wanderer. They're cheap, they're tough, they're serviceable. He dressed like Elijah the prophet, by the way, if you see 2 Kings 1.8. And his food, I don't want to talk about his food, locusts, wild honey. It's the kind of food you'd find in the wild. And I did read one commentator that said, listen, if you, if you turn, wrinkle your nose, nose at him eating locusts, remember, a lot of us eat shrimp. And then he, I didn't want to think about that any further, so I stopped reading. Um, in verses 5 and 6, we see John preaching. And John makes an impact with his preaching. People were streaming out into the wilderness to listen to John, to confess their sins, to be baptized by John. God was at work. And many people's hearts were being turned to the Lord, just as it was predicted at the end of the book of Malachi. Now, John's baptism that he was doing, it was not exactly the same as ours. But that's not for this week. We'll talk about that next week. But I'll just let you know is that what John was doing was a way for people to publicly declare, I'm turning from my sins and I'm getting cleaned up to await the arrival of the king. But we'll talk about it next week to get more in depth on that. Now... What should we learn from this stuff? That's a good question, right? Well, as the people in John's day were preparing for the arrival of Jesus, the king from God, so we should be ready to be under the rule of Jesus ourselves. You see, John called people to repent in order to be ready. So should we. We should call people to that and we should do it. Now, part of repenting, part of what the word means, is to change the way you think. Stop thinking that you get to be in charge of yourself. 
Stop thinking that you have the right to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. Instead, start thinking that God is over you, that Jesus is your Lord, and that you should rightly obey his commands. As John baptized people with water as a symbolic cleansing, we all need to be cleansed by Jesus. We're sinners in front of God. We deserve to be punished by God. We need to think differently and trust that the death of Jesus is the only payment for our sins that would ever work. We need to trust that the resurrected Jesus will forgive us if we ask. We need to ask him for mercy. We need to turn our lives over to his leadership. That is the way to be ready and to live under the kingship of Jesus. So can I ask you, have you let go of leading your own life and asked Jesus to take over? Have you entrusted your entire soul's hope to the finished work of Jesus on the cross? Is your only hope for your entire forever in the fact that Jesus died and rose again? Please hear me. This is the only hope we have. That's how you get ready for the king. Now let's turn our attention to those who would use religion for their gain, even though they're not really committed to Jesus. Point number two, believe that you deserve God's wrath. Believe that you deserve God's wrath. Look at verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Very politically correct, that John. So John, he's preaching to the crowds. He's baptizing the repentant. He sees that there are two major religious factions coming out to where he is as well. And we don't know why those men were there. Maybe they thought it would be socially helpful for them to be dunked by John. Maybe they just thought it's a good thing for us to be where the crowds are. But we know that these men were not turning from their ways. They were not preparing for the arrival of the king. And so John looks at these men and he calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them little snake babies. It is not nice to call somebody a snake baby in any culture I can think of. John says these guys are sneaky and they're dangerous. And then he asks them, who is it that warned you guys to flee the wrath of God? Because without question, God's wrath, his his full-on opposition to what opposes him is on its way. Judgment's coming. And the people are earning it. But John knows these men don't think they deserve it, and they don't think they're in danger of it. They're putting on a religious show, but they're not really repenting. You know, don't you, that the wrath of God is real? Well, you need to know that every one of us deserves it. That's the point. None of the people in the crowd should have thought they were beyond the wrath of God. In Ephesians 2, verse 3, the Bible shows us that all of mankind deserves the wrath of God. 
what you need to understand is that you're not going to have salvation if you don't think you've earned the judgment of God. You will not flee the wrath to come if you don't think wrath is headed your way. Like The reason you all aren't running out of this room right now is you don't think the building's on fire. Right? If you believed it was, you'd be out of here, I hope. And take me with you. You've got to believe that the wrath of God is on its way and that we deserve it if you're going to flee to safety. Mark Dever once said there was a lady he was talking to who said she would never go to church. She said the people in the church are nothing but vipers. Dever responded to her, yes, and there's always room for one more to slither in. That's a good attitude. Folks, we are not good. We're not better than other people. We deserve the wrath of God. But knowing that we deserve the wrath of God is what makes us cry out to Jesus for mercy. So folks, it is imperative that we believe that we deserve the wrath of God. Otherwise, we'll never have the right view of our salvation. Third point, do not rely on outward religion. Do not rely on outward religion. Verse 8, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So John tells the religious leaders who think that they are, you know, faking out the crowd around them, you guys need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, repentance is a change of mind, but it leads to a change of life. Repenting is to think differently, feel differently, and act differently. Usually in that order, by the way. Think differently, feel differently, act differently. The Pharisees and the Sadducees thought that they could go through religious rituals like washings and prayers or even baptism. And they thought that those things would somehow earn them credit with God. In fact... That's the belief of almost every religious system in the whole wide world. But God makes it clear that empty symbols have nothing to do with our salvation. Nobody goes to heaven just because they allow themselves to participate in an empty religious practice. Let me be absolutely clear. You do not go to heaven because you go to church. You do not go to heaven because you're baptized in water. You do not go to heaven because you give money. You do not go to heaven because you participate in Lord's Supper or communion. People only go to heaven when they have realized that they need the mercy of God, when they have turned away from their sins, when they have believed in Jesus and asked Him for mercy. But... We can also check ourselves to see if we really have believed in Jesus and been rescued. How do you do that? You have a fruitful life. Our lives will be changed. We'll think differently. And we'll live differently because of the new life Christ has given us. So you've got to tie these two thoughts together. Do not think for a moment that any religious ritual saves you. However, 
Do not think for a moment that once you're really saved, you will avoid religious worship. You see, saved people are changed people. Saved people want to pray, to give, to sing, to study scripture, to care for each other, to be at church, to share the gospel, to turn from sin. We do these things not to earn something from God, but because God has made us love him and love what honors him. So don't rely on outward religion. It's got to be bigger than that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Point number four. Do not rely on a religious pedigree. Do not rely on a religious pedigree. Verse 9, John says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John adds to his strong words against the religious establishment of the day. He tells them, don't think that they're okay with God because of their religious family tree. No, they're not safe just because they're physically descended from Abraham. Why? God can make kids for Abraham out of anything he wants. What did God make Adam out of? Dust, dirt. If God can make Adam out of dirt, he can surely make children for Abraham out of the rocks in the desert. In fact, God could use the dead rocks of the desert to make better children for Abraham than a bunch of conceited people who think they can trick God into blessing them because of their empty religious practices. Now, I don't think there's a lot of people in our culture today that think they're going to heaven because of their family tree used to be more of a problem than it is now. But, in case you're confused, you will not go to heaven because your mom, your dad, your grandma, or your grandpa goes. In the real kingdom of God, salvation is about your individual response to Jesus. It's about God's grace that you can only receive through your faith. God's behind it all, but it's about you and Jesus, okay? There's no parent who can earn his or her child's way into heaven. No child sneaks into heaven because of his or her parents' faith. So let's be clear with each other and with our kids. If anybody goes to heaven, it's because they repent of their sins and they believe in the saving work of the risen Jesus. Do not rely on a religious pedigree. In fact, John continues by reminding the people who are relying on empty religion and their their family trees, they're the ones in danger. They're facing the wrath of God, like he pointed out in verse 7. In verse 10, John says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, like I told you to, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fifth point. Be humble before Christ. Be humble before Christ. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John tells the religious folks that his baptism is something done with water to symbolize their repentance. But somebody's coming soon. 
Somebody's coming who is so much greater than John that John says he is not even worthy to take off the man's shoes. Now, stop and think for a moment, please. John has all of Judea coming to listen to him. Don't you think that would make you feel pretty good about yourself? He is the most popular preacher in the land, it seems. But John, in public, is telling everybody that there's somebody soon to come who is completely greater than John is himself. That is genuine humility. And we can learn from John. It is very good to be humble as you consider Jesus. Jesus is like us in that he lived a totally human life. Jesus is completely unlike us in that he is perfect, sinless, God in the flesh. We have no right in the face of Jesus to do anything but bow ourselves down and declare him to be infinitely greater than we are. We worship Jesus. We declare him to be the king. We are the subjects. He is the master. Be humble before Jesus. Sixth point, last one for this morning. Know that Christ is the judge. Know that Christ is the judge. The end of verse 11, I'll read again through 12. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was baptizing people in water as a symbol of repentance, but John knows Jesus is coming. And Jesus' baptism, it is going to be different. John points to something to come that Jesus is going to do that will involve the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I'll tell you right away that there are two completely opposite ways that people often look at the way that the sentence works out. The one that I think is the more likely is that, G, that John is telling us that what Jesus is going to do is going to involve a baptism, per se, for every person. Some people, on the one hand, are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, meaning they are going to be surrounded by, filled with the Spirit of God. And that, folks, is a good thing. The idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit of God, it's a reference to the fact that every single person who comes to faith in Jesus is given the Spirit of God to live in them. Spirit baptism, in case you're confused, is not a mystical, charismatic experience that results in miraculous signs or the gifts of tongues. Spirit baptism is not something believers seek out and long for and some get and some don't. No, no, no. Spirit baptism comes as God identifies a new believer with his family and he marks the believer as his own. But what about that fire? That's the part that people differ on. And I think it's an other baptism that some people will experience. It's those who reject the grace of God by coming to Jesus for mercy 
And if you, refuse to re- if you refuse to receive the grace of God and the baptism of the Spirit because you've come to Jesus in faith, if you refuse Jesus, you face the fire of God, his judgment, his wrath. Now, why do I think that? It's that because, again, some people would say, oh, the Holy Spirit and the fire, they're kind of thinking like the day of Pentecost, being filled with the holy fire of God. The reason I don't think that's the case is in verse 10, we saw a warning that fruitless trees were doomed to be chopped down and burned. In verse 12, we see that God is going to winnow the world. He's going to keep the wheat, but the chaff is going to be burned. And so I think fire here is a judgment reference. I could be wrong, though. Well, you don't have to understand all the agricultural imagery here to understand this. If you're not familiar with horticulture and winnowing and all the rest, here's the deal. We're destined either for heaven or hell. We're destined either to be rewarded by God with life forever or with eternal death and judgment. And I assure you, folks, you want life. Know that Jesus is our judge and come to Jesus for mercy before you experience his justice. As we opened our study... We heard the story of a man who thought that he could join a church in order to be more politically electable in the South. I think we can see that that kind of motive is not going to impress God. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. And we need to worship Him. And we need to honor Him. And we need to be ready to meet Him. So know this. We deserve the wrath of God. We cannot rely on empty religious practices. We cannot rely on our family tree or our pedigree. Instead, what we have to do is be humble before Jesus, who is the judge of all. And as John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come to Jesus for mercy. Turn from sin. Yield to Jesus your life. And let your life be marked by fruitful obedience instead of false religion. Let's bow together in prayer. Again, Lord, we thank you. Again, Lord, we worship you. Again, Lord, we acknowledge our great need for you. And I thank you, Lord, for the gospel. And I thank you that it just keeps showing up everywhere we look in scripture. And I pray that as we sing, that you would indeed be central to our thought processes, be central to how we might best honor you. Help us to repent and to be under your lordship. And if that means that someone here needs to come to trust you in faith, I pray they'll do it. And if that means that someone needs to repent of sin and start obeying you, I pray they'll do it. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to respond with the song, Be Thou My Vision, and then we will continue in worship afterwards.